Good morning, RCC. My name is Ben Seaman. I serve on staff here as our lead minister. I want to welcome everyone watching online as well as uh, in person. Uh, before we close out our series today, uh, I want to inform our, our church of some family news. As many of you know that John Cody was struggling with his health uh, recently and um, passed away this past week and lost his battle with cancer. Uh, John was a faithful follower of Jesus. He and Marianne have attended RCC for a really, really long time. John actually was one of our elders uh, in the beginning. And so I'd ask you to keep the Cody family uh, in your prayers. Because of everything related to the pandemic, um, the family will have a Celebration of Life series here, but want to wait uh, during the spring. Uh, so if you would, uh, I'd like to bow uh, our heads in prayer and pray for the Cody family. Jesus, we thank you so much for John and for Mary Ann and the impact that they've had uh, in all of our lives. Uh, what a beautiful reminder uh, that we could waste our life away <laughs> by falling in love with you, chasing after you. And it, it's a, for me, it's a beautiful reminder of what's actually really important, not money or security or financial stuff or physical things, but sharing the love of Christ with other people. Uh, and we are, all of us at RCC and many people outside of these walls for sure, are the result of John and Mary Ann Cody's ministry. Lord, we pray for uh, our sister in Christ, Mary Ann, that you would comfort her and come alongside her. Jesus, you promised us that there's a peace that passes all understanding. Even the most intelligent of humans cannot grasp the comforting peace that your spirit brings. We ask that you would give that to Marianne and to her family as they grieve, Lord. And what a beautiful gift that the local church is. Your, your uh, follower, Paul, talks about how the church is actually a family. And uh, I know that a lot of people in this season especially need love, need family, need relationships. I pray that our church would provide that for the Codys. Thank you again for John and his legacy. Thank you for the promise of heaven, an empty tomb, and a bloody cross as a reminder that while we're here on earth, we are, we are on assignment and that we will be reunited with you and the ones we love, friends and family, one day in heaven. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Uh, I'm going to make a hard right <laughs> and talk about the teen years. As we close out our series, uh, it's just a phase. In this series, the question your students are asking, you might be asking them all the time, what are you doing, <laughs> which is valid. The question they're asking is a question of identity, which is this, who am I? Who am I? And this is a really tough season. Parents, you know this if you've passed this. Grandparents, you know this as well. As you're watching your kids parent their teenagers, and maybe if you're honest, in a moment of quietness, you laugh because what goes around comes around, right? No, I'm kidding. Karma doesn't exist because grace exists. This is a question your students are asking. It's hard because they're, go they're going to fight for autonomy in the middle school and high school years. And a lot of it is letting go and knowing how much and when to pull back and when to actually give them permission uh, to do the things that they want uh, to do. I uh, went down memory lane. I really hope you've already eaten breakfast. Uh, I found the most high school photo I could of myself, so here it is. You're welcome. I was single a lot in high school, okay? 
I know there's more of you watching online that's in person, but you guys can laugh, all right? What you don't know is I was a big fan of Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, and under that hair is a shaved head. In the 90s, we had what was called the soup bowl, uh, which you just shaved your head and the hair fell down. I actually got it to about here. I was this close to, sh- uh, to being able to put it in a ponytail. That happened during the summer, uh, but because my parents put us in a private Christian school, that was frowned upon. So as close as I could get to it, uh, my mom made me get a haircut. Um, I'm trying to grow a mustache here. Uh, let's just move on. That's a hideous picture. That's just, that's just a hideous picture. This next picture uh, is a photo of uh, me. I was, I think, 17 years old uh, playing in my high school band. Um, it was a weird name, Kairoikos. Don't ask me to what it means. Somebody else, we had to come up with a name. Uh, one of my first gigs in high school, which is really cool, was downtown Cincinnati, no joke, at the uh, Carson Chaplin Theater uh, in front of hundreds of people where like, like James Taylor and other musicians would come during the winter. It was our Cincinnati, it was like one of our largest indoor venue, uh, venues that we had in Cincinnati. I had no idea how I got there, but a friend of mine said, hey, we need a rhythm guitar player. Do you know these four chords? And I said, sure, I'll be there. Uh, this, is, this photo was taken at our church. Uh, a friend of mine, Kate, and I would uh, host a coffee house. Those were big back in the 90s. I don't know if you've seen the, mur- uh, the movie So I Married an Axe Murderer. It was sort of that vibe, coffee, big coffee mugs. People were, we had, you know, silent movies, bands were playing, um, and my band played at that. And it was, it was a lot of fun, although you can't see this. I was, pretty, I was pretty terrified. It was one of my first gigs. This next photo is a photo of my brother's rap group. Yeah, you heard that right. Yeah, you can laugh. It's okay. All right. This is our hour of social interaction during a pandemic. It's okay to laugh. My brother Nathan is in the bottom right corner, who is a pastor now (laughs) in in Charlotte. He was a phenomenal youth pastor because, as you can see, nothing got by Nathan. They actually went into a studio and recorded a, remember this, a CD. And I don't have it with me, unfortunately, but it floats in and out of my hands. And what they did was awesome. They, they took uh, music from like Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre and 90s hip hop artists and put their own lyrics over it. And so after about the fourth gig, I said, Nathan, do you know what copyright infringement is? <laughs> no? Okay, we'll keep passing those out. Keep selling those uh, CDs. Uh, high school for me was a very formative time uh, in my spiritual journey. This next photo is a photo of uh, me uh, to my, uh, well, the guy in the middle, uh, Eric is in the blue shirt, and the guy in the middle, his name's Kevin. He was one of our interns at the time. Now now he's uh, actually, uh, we, the, uh, my home church hired him to be a campus pastor, I think like two years ago. And man, high school was tough. It was hard. My home life, as I've shared with you, many times was a war zone. But for me, youth group was uh, a a time of respite. This photo was taken at a conference called CIY. Uh, Now it's called CIY Move. We're trying to get your high school students there uh, once they come out to New England. They did two summers ago. We were going to plan last summer, but you know, like everything else happened. This next photo is a really cool photo for me. Uh, I think this is the Smoky Mountains. It's about five hours or so from Cincinnati. And um, I believe this is towards the evening, at least I remember. And uh, I had the opportunity to lead worship uh, with some of the uh, upperclassmen in our, in our um, youth group. 
And I don't know if you remember me telling a story about Mike uh, during the Hero Maker series, but Mike Stoller is in the bottom left, the only guy with sideburns, so he's kind of a semi-adult uh, in, that, in that photo, and just a great investment uh, in, my, in my life. The last photo I want to share with you is me. Uh, I think I'm 17 years old, and these are three of my favorite ladies that I've ever met in my life. This photo was taken in Park Slope, uh, Brooklyn, New York, where my youth pastor's friend um, planted a church after uh, graduating from Cincinnati Bible College. And for years and years, he was trying to get my youth pastor, Brad, to come out and plant a church with him. Brad would eventually leave Cincinnati to plant a church in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. But during this, uh, this photo, we, uh, we held a um, sort of a soccer clinic for the kids. And on Monday, like any VBS you do on like a mission trip, you've got like 20 kids that show up. But by, by the end of the week, when word gets out that uh, there's a free thing going on in the summertime, we had, I don't know, probably 80 to 100 kids show up. I, I took this photo, I, I think, I think, and we, doesn't our memory make us look better than what we actually are? Uh, I think what happened, the reason why I took this photo is, what I'm about to tell you, this actually did happen. I'm very proud of it. Uh, these three girls were on my soccer team, and the parents were coming to pick up their kids, so because parents are there, there's sort of a clock. We kind of got to wind it down. We are at our end of the soccer field, or I should say basketball court, because it's Brooklyn, right? It's a concrete jungle. There's no such thing as grass in Brooklyn. And they're on our side of the goalie. They pass it to me. I'll tell you what, this is the highlight of my life, okay? Uh, I kicked the ball as hard as I can because I knew the game was on the line. It went as high as I could kick it and perfectly went into the top of the net on the other end over a fourth grader's head. And I laughed my head off. It was awesome. This was actually, um, I think this was in, uh, this was either 99 or 2000, which is kind of weird because I was on top of the World Trade Center a year before actually 9-11 actually happened. These are some of the most formative years uh, of, of my life. Um, and nobody's perfect. Parents, you know that, right? Some, sometimes we, we're afraid to talk about the things that are going behind closed doors with other Christian friends. What's really hard about the adolescent phase is this. I don't know when this happens. It depends on your parenting. It depends on um, your child's temperament and personality. Uh, my, my wife was a, was a child where if you looked at her, she would start crying, all right? Uh, I was a child where if my dad showed me the belt, then I would start, cry, start crying. That was back in, uh, we, we won't go there, okay? Um, but it depends on your kids. Here's a, here's a transition that happens in adolescence. The shift is making decisions not for your children, but making decisions with your children. And I don't know when that is for you as a parent or for your teenager. Uh, see, in, in the early stages of infancy, infancy and maybe preschool, you could literally pick up your kid and say, sit over here, right? Or you're going to eat now. The only thing that was out of your control is when your kid went to the bathroom in their diaper. But as they get older, right, there's, there's a switch that happens to helping your student phase into young adulthood by allowing them to be in conversation with you to make decisions collectively together, so long as they obey the rules, the boundaries, and whatever you uh, set in place for your family. Here's some of the decision-making conversations that happen in the adolescent years. Smartphones and social media. 
Next week, I'm going to do a three-week series on Romans 12 called Soul Detox. And so we'll spend three weeks talking about the importance of uh, having a healthy relationship with technology, with social media. So I'm just going to lightly touch on that, but know that in the next three weeks, we're going to spend uh, talking about social media. Electronics, cell phones, tablets, when do I drive a car, when can I stay out later, dating, and even following Jesus. This is a, this is a time in your student's life where they're deciding if, if I want to make faith my own. Uh, do I really buy into this Jesus thing? Is this a fairy tale? Some of my teachers in high school tell me that, you know, science eliminates <laughs> Christianity. You know, well, the Bible is not a science book. Sorry, I hate to burst your bubble. When people ask me, prove to me scientifically the Bible is true, I say no, because <laughs> the Bible is written as a historical book. You don't disprove the Bible through the evidentiary method like you do science. You disprove it through, uh, you don't disprove it the scientific method, you disprove it through the evidentiary method. You have to put it on trial. Do the writers say the same thing? Are there any mess ups, right? All, all of that sort of thing. And this is uh, the reason why I put this in here because it's really critical. Because in my 10 years of student ministry, parents tend to freak out when their kid comes home and says, I don't know if I believe in the God thing anymore. Uh, my experience is this that the people that um, doubt or maybe claim atheism, are often the most engaged people in the church. It's the people that are already convinced that Jesus is who he is. He's, they're no longer curious. They're no longer filled with wonder. And their heart and their mind are just set on autopilot, right? Those are the people that scare me to death. And so I just want to encourage you parents that at least at RCC, with what, what's in my realm of influence, if you have a child that comes home and says, yeah, I don't really buy this stuff anymore because, you know, my... 10th grade biology teacher said that uh, Christianity is a joke. Come talk to me, okay? Come talk to me. Allow your students to come talk to me. I'm not going to beat them over the head. But if they're actually thinking uh, on that level, that's awesome. That's great that they're doubting. That's great that they have questions. But don't let that go unchecked for the love of God. That's why your church is here. Let me have a conversation with them. Let Andrew or Brian or one of our elders, an adult at our church that you trust, let them have a conversation. It's good to question. It's good to doubt. It's, look, if Christianity cannot be tested at the highest collegiate level, then why, why would we even follow it every single day of our lives? It's normal if your child is pulling away from their faith and their adolescent years because they're fighting for autonomy. They're just not sure how to do it in a healthy way. Here are some additional questions your teachers are, your teachers, wow, you, I can't read. Your teenagers are asking themselves, um, who, do I, who do I like and who likes me? Right? Your kids are worried about acceptance. Why should I believe? Again, they want to clarify their values for themselves. How can I matter? They want to refine what they're good at. What will I do? They're thinking, this is probably more for upperclassmen, they're thinking about the vision of their life. What does life look like after high school, uh, after college, the military, the workforce? Th there are a lot of passages that I could go to today, friends, of, of dysfunctional and healthy families uh, in the Bible. Uh, but the, the chapter that I've been wrestling with a lot in my own spiritual formation, my own, as we call it in the 90s, quiet time, is, is Psalm 116. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Psalm 116. If you have the Bible app, I'd encourage you, I don't know if you know that this feature exists on it, highlight some of those things. You can text 
uh, anything that pops out to you in the sermon or the chapter. You can text that to yourself. You can post those things on social media. You can even email it to your high school student who didn't want to come to church today, and you thought, you, were you know, this encouraged me, so I want to share it with you. I want to give you three things that you can be for your child uh, during the adolescent years. Here's the first one. You can be your child's prayer advocate. In Psalm 116, David writes, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangle me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord and the Lord saves me. Parenting adolescence is not for the faint of heart, is it? And over the years of me being in student ministry, one of the refrains that I keep hearing is, my child is going through X. I don't know if I can talk about it in the church because I don't want to be judged or ostracized. Again, it, it's, it's competing with this idea of religion versus the gospel, right? If we view Christianity as a religion where our sole identity is focused on how well we do, how well we perform, which I'll address at the end of the sermon, then yes, we're not going to talk about these things. Uh, in, in the several churches that I've served over the years, I've had parents who have had their kids addicted to drugs and alcohol. Almost every teenage boy at some point has experienced pornography and or is addicted to it. Now, that's probably blown up, which I'll talk about more next week in our series, Soul Detox. Um, but, but these issues paralyze parents because they want to talk about it in the church where they're not sure if they're going to get judged. Uh, I've, had, I've had parents, I've spoken with parents whose students have struggled with suicide ideation. Some of them acted out on it. Some of them, um, there was a gal that I know that believed that God did not make her pretty enough and so to punish herself, she began to self-harm and cut herself. And for some reason, we separate like, okay, this is going on in my house, but we have to act a certain way when we walk through the doors of the church. You know what I'm saying? My family did this all the time. Hey, how's it going? Put on a smile. But <clears throat> behind closed doors, it seems like our world is, is falling apart. And I love what the writer says in Psalm 116. I feel like the cords of death have entangled me. But every time this writer cries out to God in mercy, he receives mercy from the Lord. Parenting teenagers will and should drive you to your knees. It is a reminder, once again, in a new way, that nothing is in your control, parents. And it is also a reminder of your identity, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, that the truest thing about who you are, we sing about it today, it's actually scripture, Jesus said it, that we are who Jesus says that we are, and we are the beloved son and daughter of God. So many parents go down a really dark place when their kids are addicted to substances, when their kids constantly leave, when their kids are getting into stuff that they shouldn't be, when their kids are just in a season of straight-up rebellion that would make you know, Pharaoh and Exodus blush. And I remind parents, so what, what, if, what if your student graduates high school and decides to be an atheist? What, what if your student 
This has happened to me in student ministry. Gets in a car wreck, car wreck two weeks before their high school graduation and passes away. What happens if your kid moves off to college and, you know, dates somebody and marries them and brainwashes them and they never want to speak to you again? Who are you then? Parents, so, so many times we, we, we put our identity and our ability to do, which is the antithesis of religion. But how we parent is not our truest identity. We are a beloved son and daughter of God, regardless if our sons and daughters decide to follow Jesus after graduation or even during our high school years. You know, there, there's an aspect of the gospel that shapes us that we really don't want to experience. We're all about a bloody cross. We're all about an empty tomb. We're all about Easter. We love Nike shoes, which is, I talked about this in a Revelation series, the Greek goddess of, uh, or God of victory. We love victory. We love power. But we're also in a season of Lent right now, which if we enter in Lent, in all honesty, it's an invitation to look inwardly and search our own souls. One of the... Um, one of the uh, things that Jesus was called was the man of sorrow. Uh, actually, in Isaiah 53, uh, Isaiah describes Jesus this way. Jesus, he, of course, this is a prophecy. Jesus wasn't born yet. He was despised and rejected by mankind. Nobody took Jesus. Nobody, this is a promise that when Jesus comes, no one's going to take him seriously. Does that sound like 2021? A man of suffering familiar with pain, like one whom people hid their faces. Jesus was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Uh, I remember when I began my counseling journey, um, and out of nowhere I would begin to cry as my counselor was marrying my family of origin and the truth of the gospel. She, she was a Christian, so she was able to do this for me. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, Ben, uh, tears are the ministry of mercy. And th there's a beauty, parents, of when you're dropping to your knees, praying for your kid, that there's an, there's an identifying moment that, that Jesus has with you. He knows how long a night can get. He knows what it, it looks like to be disrespected, to not be taken seriously, to even have his own friends abandon him. In, in 1 John 2, 1, John says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John, who would be um, sort of in, he, he's old enough to be a grandfather. And when he uses the word children, he's talking about the people in his church. He's very close to death. And what he tells his church is this, that when you pray, you cause heaven to have conversations about you. See, when we pray, God, I blew it. I, I cussed out my kid. I took a spatula and slammed it against the, uh, the cabinet and it broke. Like, I, I lost my cool. <clears throat> the gospel reminds us that in our sin, we have an advocate. That when we pray, Jesus represents us to the Father and says, this, this, this person is mine. He, he or she belongs to me. They're covered by the blood. And I find that beautiful. And parents, I hope that you find that hopeful. 
that the gospel identifies with you in your struggle and the emotional toll that takes on you to parent adolescents. That even when you drop the ball, parents, even when your kids drop the ball, students, that we have an advocate who speaks on our behalf. Our Heavenly Father doesn't have to forgive us. Like, he's not a genie. God is for God. He can do whatever he wants. But Jesus is our defense attorney. It says, no, this one, he blew it, Dad. She blew it, Dad. The whole family, the, you remember Christmas of 98? The whole family lost it on each other. But they, they belong to us. They belong to us. The writer says, the cords of death entangle me. And when I called out to God, <laughs> he saved me and he rescued me. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know that God, um, though we turn our face away from Jesus, as Isaiah 53 says, I don't know that God is embarrassed or wants to walk away from us when he sees the dysfunction behind closed doors. You see, the problem, and I think in our culture, that we think that um, darkness is like drug-infested like ghetto neighborhoods, but darkness is also well-kept lawns, big houses, and gated communities. Just looks different, but both can happen in both communities. And I, I think God is, is more interested in journeying with us. And there's so much about parenting adolescents that we get so angry about, maybe even so embarrassed about, that we don't want to present what's going on in our family to the Lord. But the writer of Psalm 116 is telling us, when we feel like the cords of death are entangling us, this is, by the way, a chapter on one's emotional health and mental health. He saves us. He redeems us. You can be your child's prayer advocate. Secondly, you need to be, or you can be, your child's compass. As the writer continues in Psalm 116, he says this. He says, The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unweary. When I was brought low, he saved us. You know what I was so frustrated about in youth ministry? Why do boys do dumb stuff to get girls' attention? You ever thought about that? You can say yes, guys, although you're you know, many years removed. I never, like, it would, I would get so mad, which is funny because I did the same dumb stuff when I was in high school, and we did it to see, like, how much dumb stuff could we do for the youth pastor to, like, yell at us, right? And then here I am being my youth pastor yelling at these guys, and I remember talking to, to a local Christian counselor that I referred many students to, and she said, Ben, you don't, you don't know why? High school guys and girls, mainly guys, because girls are, they mature a lot quicker. Um, you, know, you, know, you know why guys do dumb stuff? Ben, it's because their brain is not fully developed. I was like, what are you talking about? The, the pleasure brain, the, 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 lobe, the frontal lobes, the cortex, the amygdala, like the, the, the pleasure sense of the brain of if I do this dumb thing, I might actually hurt myself. Yeah, that's not developed. And some of the guys, you're talking mid to late 20s. And depending on how they, you know, suffer from Peter Pan syndrome, they don't want to grow up maybe even their early 30s. I'm like, are you kidding me? 
I just thought they were wicked sinners. <laughs> He's like, no, it's the brain that God gave us. It's the development of the human brain. So as I was re- researching this, I found an awesome article. I think it's from Psychology Today. I may or may not post it on my Facebook this week, but it's, it's, it's beautifully called Why Teens Do Dumb Things and How You Can Stop Them. And in the article, it talks about how the uh, amygdala and the frontal lobes talk to uh, one another. The frontal lobes tell the amygdala what to do with all the excitement, and the amygdala is, is processing sort of fight or flight. Does this make sense? And so imagine, here's kind of a Midwest analogy. Imagine there's a water tower at your high school at the end of the football field. And uh, imagine that you, uh, th- th- that I like a girl in high school, but there's this other guy that's a punk because he likes her. And last week, to prove his love, he climbed up the water tower, right? And now I think I have to do that to prove my love to her. And as I walk over to the water tower, I see this girl that I love, and she should know that I love her, right, at 15 or 16, but she's getting in the car with this other dude. So here's what happens in a high school male and female, but I'm a guy, so I'm not going to speak for ladies, brain when they're processing this. Here's the frontal lobe. Hey, we need to climb up the water tower to profess our love with this girl. It doesn't matter what's going to happen. And then the amygdala is going, ah! And then the frontal lobe goes, no, we got to go now, now, now. She's, she's getting in the car. And the amygdala goes, ah! And the frontal lobe goes, hey, um, you know, Every time we think we should do something, it always benefits us if we wait five minutes. You think we should wait? No, we got to go now. And the amygdala goes, ah! And then my parents get a phone call. Your dumb son's in the ER. He fell off a water tower and broke his arm. And the psalmist in 116 says this, the Lord protects the unweary. That's a nice way to say stupid people. I'm not kidding. Know your Hebrew, or just look on Google. It's a word for people um, that do not, it's a word not for smart people, but for unwise people. People that, man, if I climb this water tower, or if I go 80 at this sharp curve in the dead of winter, I might end up in that field. I might end up headfirst in that telephone pole. The Bible protects dumb people? protects my teenager? Yeah, because at the end of this, it says, when I was brought low, he saved me. He saved me. The imagery of being brought low in, in, in this Hebrew phrase is this sort of this imagery of a, a bucket full of water being dropped into a well. But as it's being dropped, it's being banged back and forth all the way down, right? And so we don't say I was brought low, but here's what we say. Uh, my mom calling my dad. Yeah, Mike, your idiot son fell off a water tower and broke his arm. And when they called me, my what? Heart sank. This is the emotional and mental health of what happens to us in our lives. Yes, you could argue like because of sin for sure. But this is what happens often, parents, isn't it? When we parent our teenagers, teenagers, this is what happens, right? When we do dumb things. We thought it was a good idea, and then our heart sinks. <laughs> it didn't give us what we thought it would give us or what we thought it promised us. Parents, we've been, um, we've been talking about this idea of uh, 
uh, increasing your circle of influence or expanding your circle of influence. So if you were to take this room and imagine it was a big circle like a compass and the safest place for your child, your adolescent teen, is in the middle of this room, well, what we're saying is you need to have other adults who are followers of Jesus that you know, love, and trust that would stand along the perimeter of this room. And how do you know <laughs> the right adults to pick? Because they reinforce what you would say at home, at church, on the soccer field, at school, at their jobs. Because here's the truth of the reality is, parents, if you don't have uh, other adults uh, surrounding your child, increasing your parenting circle of influence, when they get to the edge and think, oh, I should climb this water tower, or oh, I should do 80 in a residential, and there's nobody there to say, hey, why don't you, why don't you just, let's just walk back to the middle of the room <laughs> where it's safe. They're going to they'll destroy their lives. It's so funny, um, not funny, but sad, interesting, that one of the things when I was in student ministry that uh, parents and grandparents were concerned about is, which I get it, it's, um, you know, uh, make sure my kid doesn't choose atheism when they go to college. I'm like, well, I'm not, I can't, what? That's not really possible. And I think in part what they mean is they should know cognitively enough about the Bible to withstand philosophy 101 so that when their philosophy professor says Christianity is a joke and they love Nietzsche and God is dead, that they wouldn't walk away from the faith. But here's what research tells us. A high school student who goes to college is more likely to stay in their faith, not because they know a lot of facts about this or even that they can defend this. It's because, you ready, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa? They've had two to five significant adult relations in their life who came alongside them in high school and is willing to come alongside them in college. For me, his name is Mark, Mark Deskin. He was my life group leader when I was in high school. And once a month, it was only a 30-minute phone call, he'd call me, hey, how you doing? How's it going? And this is the height of like when my parents' marriage began to crumble. And it was a really significant time in my life. And I had dated um, two different ladies that I thought, of course, guys always think the best, right? That I thought it was going somewhere and they ended in really bad breakups. But I had those adults in my life that were willing to come alongside of me. Parents, you can be your child's compass, but you have to influence, you have to expand your circle of influence. You have to. You're not, you cannot be everywhere. You can't be everywhere at once. Right? This is why we have student ministry in our church. Get your kids involved in a life group. Get them to deep freeze. Get them on a mission trip. Get them going to work camp New England. I don't care if they don't want to do it. Get them there. We don't do these things to have church events. We do these things because we want your students to, as we say, journey with other adults. Yeah, deep freeze could be boring. They could hate it. So what? But they've, they bonded with another adult, that that could be a beginning of a significant relationship with that student. That's what matters most. Thirdly and finally, be your child's shepherd. We talk about all the time the journey inward. Who we are becoming is more important than what we're doing. In Psalm 116.7, I, I, I've been wrestling with this verse for a couple weeks now. I love it. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Let me read that again, church. Return to your rest, my soul. He's talking to his soul. 
for the Lord has been good to you. One of the, um, although we mean well, one of the scariest questions we can ask our upperclassmen is, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life? Now, I get that. I get that question uh, because it's like, oh, I, I don't know. What do you do want to do with your life? I asked my uncle this one time, I don't know, what do you want to do with your life? And they're like, I, I don't know. I don't even like my job. Okay, well, I'm trying to figure out the same thing. What if we reframed it and we asked this question? How do we want to be in this world? How do we want to be in this world? Now, notice the subtle difference here. Question one assumes that our doing informs our being. Question two assumes uh, our being informs our doing. In other words, who I am is not what I do. My, like for me as a job, like, yeah, I'm a pastor, but that's not who I am. It's what I do for a living. It's my job. But the truest thing about me is not that I'm a pastor. Good Lord. It's that I'm a beloved son of God. Here's what happens, uh, uh, parents, is that uh, oftentimes when we put all this pressure on students, and if I was your student, I would put it on myself. I wouldn't even need your help because I've struggled with anxiety enough as it is. We put, all these, we put all this pressure on our students to have a good GPA, to get involved in everything, basically building our resume so that we can get into the right college, get the right job, marry the right person, have the right amount of kids. Here's, here's what I have seen with my own eyes, parents. Take it or leave it. I'm just telling you what I've seen in my journey as a student pastor. I have seen so many students stress out about getting a 4.0 in their AP classes or their advanced placement classes. And the thing of it is, is they go off to college. They, 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 have a, they, have a, 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 they share a room, a dorm room with another person or some suite mates who are in the same program. They graduate the same time. They get the same job. They make the same salary. But the child that was in my student ministry loses their job three to four years into that position. And they spent their whole life doing, doing. I have to get a certain GPA. I have to get these things. I have to get these amount of scholarships. Or I what? I won't be able to be this thing. We are addicted in our country, in our culture, to doing. The gospel does not invite us to do. The gospel invites us to be. The reason why, in part, and I'm not, <laughs> it, 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 was, it was a mess, but the reason why I was able to navigate some of the toughest times in my early to mid-20s wasn't because I had a good GPA, which I, I did. It wasn't because I was a killer guitar player, which I kind of was. It was because I was formed by the people at White Oak Christian Church that came alongside me. If you parent so that your child could be something when they grow up, and that something is taken away from them, it will devastate them. Because that's what idols do. Idols are meant to prop us up, to think that they will give us what we want in life, but will ultimately devastate us. You're responsible to shepherd your own child's soul. Make time to allow them to rest. How do I do that, Ben? What are they like? My wife doesn't like, like to read the Bible a lot, but she loves to paint. She's an artist, so she'll take a verse out of Psalms and she'll paint it. Uh, I don't like inactivity, 
So I like to hike. So I'll go on a hike and I'll bring a Bible, a journal, a pen. Whenever I get to my summit, I'll take 30, 45 minutes, eat a lunch and spend some time in God's word. I'm struggling during the winter, by the way. (laughs) It depends on how your child's wired. But we have to combat this sick, demonic idea in our American culture that that who we are is who, who we are is tied to what we do. It is not tied to what we do. Who we are is defined by our Heavenly Father, that we're beloved sons and daughters of the Most High God. Parents, affirming your child's identity in Christ will help mobilize, mobilize their potential towards a better future. Here's a photo of me with my grandparents on my mom's side. High school graduation, May of 2001. In just a few months, uh, I will be heading to Joplin, Missouri to study to be a pastor. In a month after, and that will be the last time I see my mom and dad as husband and wife together. In a month after that, 9-11 will happen, which was my birthday. I turned 19 on 9-11. And a couple months, a year after that, uh, I will have a really, I will have to go through a really difficult breakup. But the reason why I was able to navigate those times is because though my parents weren't perfect, clearly I've shared stories, they did advocate for me. They prayed for me. They were, um, they were my compass and put me in relationship with other people at my local church. And those people were actually able to shepherd uh, my, my heart. I want to close by reading 3 John 1.4. When John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And parents, I know that this is your heart. I know that you want to see your children following Jesus and walking in the truth in their 20s and 30s after graduation when they're married, kids, grandkids. I know that's something you pray for. Uh, but honestly, pairing adolescence is, is, really out of our, uh, is really out of our control. But let me encourage you to be your child's advocate, to be their compass, to widen your circle of influence, uh, and to be their uh, shepherd. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate uh, we have a baptism uh, today. Ava Trout, is, it's her birthday today. I don't know if I was allowed to say that, but you're welcome, Ava. Uh, she's going to get baptized by her dad, David Trout, who's one of our elders. And I uh, just want you to take a moment to watch her story, and we'll celebrate her baptism.